Grab your roll of duct tape and hop in the van, because we're taking a trip to Possum Lake. Hello, I'm D.L. McDonald. Happy Canada Day, and welcome to the very first episode of A Plus TV, a podcast where I'll be speaking about Canadian media with fans and creators alike. Today's episode, I'm going to discuss the Red Green Show that ran from 1991 to 2005, with 15 seasons, a movie, and 300 episodes. That's right, 300. How many Canadian shows can boast that? Off the top of my head, uh, Degrassi and Train 48. And I know what you're thinking, yes, I will get to those. That's if all this goes well. So let's dive in where the show all began. And that will take us back to 1979, when Steve Smith, who would portray Red, introduced the character on his variety show, Smith and Smith. Well, uh, <coughs> how you doing, friends? Uh, Red Green here, and God, I gotta tell you, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, <coughs> it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> now, be back here at the lodge, uh, a bunch of us just went away on a trip. Uh, which is uh, <clears throat> where you usually go when you go away on a, <clears throat> on a vacation. And what we done was uh, we went to Las Vegas. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. We're dressed for it. And, uh, originally, now we were gonna go. We were gonna fly down there, you know. But uh, geez, those pinko airport guards, you know, they wouldn't let us take their rifles or the grenades. And of course, the tank was out of the question. So <clears throat> what we done was we just uh, we fired up the old pickup, you know. The, uh, no, I'm not referring to that girl that was here last week. I mean, uh, <clears throat> the old truck there. Uh, How about that? And did you know that he also based the character off of Red Fisher, who had his own show back in the 50s? Take a listen. The Red Fisher Show. Featuring Red Fisher, internationally known sportsman, outdoor editor, and member of the Fishing Hall of Fame, and his special guest. Well, hi, friends. Good to have you up the lodge again. I'm Red Fisher here, and this is Scuttlebutt Lodge, the tall tale capital of the world. And you know, every week we have another tall tale of a great adventure in the outdoors with a special guest. Steve also portrayed him on his next show, The Comedy Mill. But then, along with Rick Green, they developed a show that centered around Red's life at the Possum Lodge. The production would bounce around from CH, YTV, back to CH, Global, and ultimately end up on the CBC, which is where I first took notice of the duct tape wielding repairman. The premise of the show was simple. It takes place at the Possum Lodge, where Red and his nephew Harold are producing a TV show and it's filled with many character segments that happen in between the main story of that week. I'll touch on these segments just a bit later, but first, let me introduce you to the characters. Of course, there's Red, the leader of Possum Lodge, and he's not making a riding mower out of an old beater of a car and a ceiling fan. You'll find him extolling wisdom to you viewers. You know, throughout history, men have made some pretty important statements. Give me liberty or give me death. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. And the most famous, nobody touches my stuff. (laughs) See, men are territorial by nature. And of all the things in the natural world that a man will fight to hang on to, nothing is more sacred 
than the TV remote. When we're watching TV, we hold on to this thing like a fat kid with a corn dog. But every now and then, you need to have both hands free. Like when you want to pick up your beverage and the snack bowl at the same time. And in that split second, your wife steals the remote, and the next thing you know, you're watching Dr. Phil. Well, this is a good time to remember the second law of marital dynamics. She won't steal what she can't use. See, this remote doesn't have any batteries in it at all. They're duct taped to my wrist here. And you see these wires? They're connected to the rings that I have on my fingers, which just happen to line up with the contacts on the back of the remote. <laughs> Happy flipping. Fred's nephew, Harold, who I mentioned earlier, is played by Pat McKenna. And Harold's role was as the director-producer of their fictional TV show. He would also host many of their game shows. <clears throat> this is a uh, point in the show where uh, we give Harold a chance to say what's on his mind. Okay. Huh? Bullies, okay? All right, well, you know who I'm talking about. Those people who beat you up on the way to school and the supermarket and church. <laughs> and, and I don't mind being attacked verbally. That's okay. You know, I'm, I really, I'm getting used to that. But I, I got a Walkman, so I don't even notice much anymore. <laughs> but when it resorts to fists, I just have to stop and say, enough. But usually that doesn't help either. <laughs> Co-creator Rick Green also had his own character named Bill, who would star in his own black and white slapstick segment, where he would work through a task with Red. I was out behind the lodge thinning the herd. <laughs> And uh, I thought Bill was going to come out and help me. I don't know quite where he is. Don't be, don't, don't, just don't. Boy, you give a guy a heart attack, sneaking up on him. All right, you chop for a while, bud. I gotta relax. You chop for me. You gotta, no, that's, no, you gotta, no, there's a tree. Tree's over here, Bill. You, you're not gonna be able to, what do you got? Oh my god. Oh! My god, you brought a chainsaw. Okay. All right. Bill? 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 Excuse me, Bill. Just Bill. Bill. That's an electric chainsaw, Bill. Other characters included Ranger Gord, a lonely forest ranger who had been secluded in the woods at a watchtower for far too long, played by Peter Callahan. Hi, folks. You know, I've been working in film for quite some time now, and I function completely on my own without any outside influence whatsoever. Oh, sure, every once in a while I'll pick up and read my psychological evaluation that headquarters did on me. <laughs> but it's complete garbage. It's entitled Sociopath of the Forest. It's nonsense. I've been on every trail and path in this woods, and there's no such thing. Dalton Humphrey, the owner of the local general store, was played by one of the show's writers, Bob Bainborough. Dalton is often seen complaining about his wife or trying to be a cheapskate despite being one of the few financially secured lodge members. Well, we've got a fine selection of hats at Humphrey's Everything store. You know, even though I personally don't wear hats. Oh, you'd have to go with an onion bag. <laughs> Another contributor to the writing staff, Jeff Lumby, played the sewage and septic sucker Winston Rothschilds III. And despite having a job that literally sucks crap, he's the most positive member of the lodge. Hey, Red, I got an invitation for you and a pretty big announcement. Oh, yeah? You got a new septic truck? <laughs> Almost as good. Uh -huh. I'm getting married three weeks from Saturday. Oh, my gosh. Wow, look at that, eh? 
Wow. <laughs> Wait, what, uh, what brought all this on, Winston? Well, I was listening to this month's self-help tape from Anthony Anthony, and he says a man my age should commit to a life partner and realize all the richness of a complete existence. Couldn't just walk on hot coals, eh? <laughs> and there was also career criminal Mike Hammer, who joined the Possum Lodge while on parole. He was played by the late Wayne Robson. We're going to find a little bit more about the man we've come to know as Mike Hammer. You're not going to make me cry, you know that, don't no, you? No, no. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, Mike, you've had a colorful life. Why don't you tell us about the early years of your childhood? Hmm? Okay, well, uh, we had a pretty normal family. Uh, Mum was an exotic dancer. <laughs> I had uh, somewhere between three and seven dads, <laughs> depending on how much bail money we could come up with. And, and which one of those guys was your biological father? Well, Mum was never sure about that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> you see, she's a heavy sleeper. You had the normal stuff, uh, toys and bikes, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah, sure. I had all the same kind of toys as, uh, as the neighborhood kids. Yeah. In fact, I had theirs. <laughs> See, uh, my family always believed in sharing. So if a stranger had something, we thought they should share it with us. Oh, I see. <laughs> communal attitude towards possessions. Yeah, you? see, yeah. we weren't hung up about possessions, right? But, oh, boy, those cops sure were. The show also had its own stable of recurring guest stars such as the tall tale spinning Hap Shaughnessy, played by Gordon Pinsent. Is that oil? Is that oil I smell on that? Don't ask me, Red. I lost my sense of smell for oil when I worked on that offshore rig. You worked on one of them oil rigs? Well, those things are huge, aren't they? Eight and a half trillion tons. <laughs> really? Trillion? And we weren't drilling for oil, we were drilling for gunpowder. <laughs> Might be a little dangerous, wouldn't it, Hap? Drilling for gunpowder. Well, the water helps, and it's under a lot of pressure. This was a deep part of the ocean. Anyway, one day I was running the drill. We had maybe 21,000 leagues of pipe going straight down, and I hit the mother load. Pure gunpowder. And she blew. Boom. Not completely, but big. That pipe blew straight up. 21,000 leagues of pipe shot straight up and out into space. Traveling even 15 times the speed of sound, it took nine minutes for the end of that pipe to pass by me. <laughs> Noisy? You wouldn't believe the racket. After that, gunpowder mining was declared unsafe. Where did the pipeline come down? Mars. <laughs> and we can't forget Academy Award-nominated Graham Greene as the explosion enthusiast Edgar Montrose. Everybody knows the best time to weed your lawn is between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. in the heat of the noonday sun. And the weeds are feeling healthy and full of life. 11 to 3 is also prime nap time, so that makes weeding right out of the question. But here's how you can do both. You take small jam jars and you fill them with about a half an inch of gasoline. Then you place them on the lawn in close proximity to the weeds. And the heat of the noonday sun will focus through the glass. And just when that weed's feeling perky, bye-bye <laughs> weed. Let's talk about some of those recurring segments now that we've known the main characters. So I've already touched upon Rick Smith's adventures with Bill and Red's Handyman Corner, where, along with some duct tape, he would fabricate a taped-together oddity for the most menial of jobs. The Possum Lodge word game was a very low-maintenance game show segment where someone would have to guess a word. Okay, Mr. Green, you got uh, 30 seconds to get Ranger Gord to say this word. Lonely. Lonely. 
and go! Okay, Gord, uh, working by yourself up here at the fire tower makes you feel uh, omnipotent. <laughs> I would doubt that. Sometimes I feel like I'm adrift on a sea of evil with only my animal cunning and muddy physique for protection. You just said a lot of words there, Reg. You sure it wasn't in there somewhere? No, it was not in there. There was a big hit song for Paul Anka, I'm Just a Something Boy. Cabin. No. Okay, Gord, what is the worst part about being up here in a fire tower all by yourself? Oh, well, sometimes I wake up in the morning with my nose filled with mosquitoes. So not to say mosquitoes, they're pretty bad. Still, they keep me from getting too lonely. Hey! Rose and Campfire song segments. Red would recite a poem, or along with Harold on the Spoons, sing a humorous song. It does a man good to stop and look around At the trees and the sky and the water and the ground The beasts on the land and the birds in the air It's gonna take a long time for us to wreck this, but we're getting there. <laughs> Ask the Experts was a segment where Red and a guest would answer those hard-hitting questions. It, uh, here's today's letter. It goes as follows. Dear Experts. La la la. I've been happily married for 23 years, but lately an attractive woman at my office has been making passes at me. How can I tell her I'm not interested without hurting her feelings? Has this ever happened to you? Um. Dalton? I'm still stuck on the happily married part. <laughs> oh, brother, you guys. Hey, 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 it's not like we haven't had beautiful young women pursuing us, Harold. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're just trying to remember what we did in each individual circumstance. Maybe you woke up? <laughs> Any chance you'll ever wake up, Harold? And there was North of 40 where Red would give sage advice. I want to talk to you older guys about your good looks, or more specifically, where they went. <laughs> now, you may think that your handsome, youthful body is behind you, but the people standing back there wouldn't necessarily agree with you. <laughs> you look bad, but here's the good news. You look way better than you're gonna look. <laughs> Unless, of course, you start eating right and exercising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, sure, I suppose you could start wearing makeup and a girdle and have some cosmetic surgery, but you know what? That's for guys who bake pies and make their own curtains. <laughs> I got a better idea. As your looks start slipping, so should your standards. <laughs> you don't have to look good. You just have to look good enough. <laughs> don't get a facelift, just sit near a basset hound. You'll look fine. <laughs> Don't make any effort at all. See, apathy is the key to a youthful appearance. I mean, teenagers don't care about anything. See how young they look? And don't worry about people saying you let yourself go. They've already been saying that about you for about 10 years. Remember, I'm pulling for you. We're all in this together. And the segments didn't just belong to Red and Harold. Many of the characters were given their own segments. Ranger Gord had a cartoon PSA on nature safety tips. Well, this, is a, this is a cartoon. You know, they have cartoons for adults, you know? Felix the Cat, uh, the Jetsons, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. so, so you made a cartoon here, have you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, did all the voices, drew all the pictures myself. Wow. But it's not just a cartoon. This, uh, this, uh, this film will teach people all about different things in the forest. Oh, yeah. This particular one will teach people about tree holes. Tree holes? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds riveting. Yeah. Here we go. 
Well, folks, time to learn about the dangers of tree holes. What's a tree hole, Ranger Gord? Well, Harold, that's the common name for a hole that is in a tree. But most people don't realize that a tree hole is actually a tree's mouth. I think you're wrong about that, Gord. Uh, you don't usually make a lot of sense, you know. Uh, I think you're way out there. <laughs> Mike Hammer had his Teen Talk segments where he would give out bad advice. Um, I got an idea for you teenage boys out there. Um, I think you should pull your pants up higher. <laughs> like, maybe up to around, say, like your waistline, you know? I mean, uh, don't think I don't appreciate the value of really baggy clothes. Believe me, I know the value of really baggy clothes. Especially when I'm shopping. <laughs> and even Winston had many commercials where he would promote his septic business. You know, over the years, the success of a lot of companies can be measured by the effectiveness of their advertising slogan. <laughs> now, even though a lot of these old slogans are from the past, they still apply today. And, more importantly, they can apply to Rothschild sewage and septic sucking services. <laughs> Remember old slogans like, the quicker picker upper, or that was some spicy meatball. <laughs> or how about this one? Where's the beef? I know the answer to that. So help us pick a slogan and you'll receive a year's free sucking for you and a loved one. Rothschild sewage and septic sucking services. We're number two. Now let's add a bit of trivia to this podcast. Here's one. Season two was produced more like a sitcom. And you could tell it just wasn't working, and that's probably why it was canceled. Although, those who canceled it were also the people that told them to change the format in the first place. And that's a pretty common thing in the film and TV business. Season three would be produced in front of a live studio audience. And this would be the norm for the rest of the show's run. And now, what would a podcast be without a guest? So, I am pleased to introduce, on the very first episode of A Plus TV, Harold Green himself, Mr. Pat McKenna. Good morning. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well up here. Isolation is working out for me. <laughs> everybody, everybody who knows me. Yeah, they, they know you should be isolated. Yeah, it's been that way for a long time. This just kind of works out now. So I don't know everything about the Red Green Show, so I thought I would ask an expert. La, la, la. Hey, that's me. You, <laughs> you know a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> what were your like initial thoughts when Rick approached you to do the show? Um, actually, it was Steve that approached me because I was at uh, Second City doing a, a, sh a show. I was in the regular cast at that time. And the Herald's character was in the show. And uh, Steve saw it and thought, well, that, that's a hilarious thing to have standing beside me because the, the red-green character is so static. He was a little worried that it really wasn't television worthy of 22 minutes. Whereas if you put something visual like that Herald character beside him, then there's conflict and there's something to watch. And it, it was a really great opportunity because the character was fun to do within a sketch. But with, then you get 15 years of playing him you kind of go through a lot of gamuts of what this character's going through. You know, it went from a two-minute sketch to a lifetime career. It's incredible. Yeah, and you were aware of Steve through the Smith & Smith show and Comedy Mill, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I was from Hamilton, so I grew up watching Smith & Smith as, you know, when it came on. And uh, Comedy Mill I was really familiar with because friends of mine were in it, Linda Cash and Peter Callahan, who went on to be Ranger Gord. 
So I was just kind of committed to the show that way. And the fact that he was from Hamilton and he was looking for writers at one point. So I, I bumped into him as a, as a uh, potential writer. So that was really our first introduction. And then I think he had a, a taste of me and kind of went, yeah, not my guy. And until he saw the character, Harold, and was like, that <laughs> I could work with every day. Not the real Pat McKenna, but that guy. Sure. How much of Harold was on the page? The line, every line was on the page because uh, Steve went to a lot of work to create those words and he really wanted you to respect them. And obviously I did because the audiences were responding. So it was like, he knows what he's doing. Uh, so the words were all his. Everything else in between was pretty much up to me. So a lot of the, the hip moves and the this and the that and the la la la's and anything else that, that kind of came after a word or between, that, that was me. And it was usually a lot of fun because we'd rehearse maybe in the afternoon for the cameras. You know, I'll, I'll enter at this line, I'll stand here so the lighting gets you and the cameras get you. But you really don't rehearse the, the words and the lines and the actions too much. You just kind of bump your way through it. So the first time you really hear it or do it is in front of the audience. So any of that milking that goes on that Harold is so capable of doing, that was just uh, the energy of the audience and the twinkle in Steve's eye of, you know, don't play around too much. You know, you kids right. can have fun, but don't get too dangerous. And, and that was always the line to walk with him. And it was just so much fun because he's just the best. He, you can play any speed with him and he'll serve it right back to you. Yeah, he seemed like he was always on the ball. And I did hear he wasn't a big fan of improv because he said it was almost like performing a first draft. Yeah. And uh, particularly the, the second season, uh, he was coerced, I think, into hiring a whole bunch of us Second City guys. Uh, and everyone was an improviser. So everybody had to tag a line or do something. The show became so long and so rambling that it only proved Steve's point of, you know, we got 22 minutes here and 17 characters. We can't all have four minute monologues. So it was a real education of uh, stick to the script, trust the script. And maybe if you had a line suggestion, if he was like, it's easier for me to say this than that, you know, he'd be okay with changing a few things that way. Or maybe you stumbled across a joke in rehearsal that, just made everyone laugh. He go, oh, that's a, that's a better punchline. Let's use that. And he was really good at him. We'd do two shows a night and would be, um, I think, 6.30. And it was over at 8. And the next one started at 8.30. So we had half an hour between shows. You'd sit down with the script and you'd fix the lines that weren't great in the, in the first show. Or, you, you know, you bumped the, uh, the setup here, make sure they get this clean. You know, it was a real tight machine. You get everybody around that table within that half hour and then get up and do the second show. So you were always constantly engaged. You know, your, your mind was always being ch uh, challenged to be active. Wow. I didn't realize that you would put up two shows at once. It was the same show. It was just tightening it up, right? Exactly. And then he could, within editing, he could put the two shows together. You know, that's why it was another important reason not to change the lines. So he could edit between shows without having, you know, I missed that monologue you did because I had to get in there for this angle of lighting and so on. Right. So you had to learn to respect those things that there would be three cameras and Steve, the middle one would shoot two of us and the camera right would be camera left rather would be my camera and camera right would be Steve's camera. So if you want to do any takes or milking or lean out or anything, you knew yet you were covered. Right. And standing right. within yeah. those boundaries of eccentricity was sort of the challenge. Of that. About the second season, uh, it became more of a sitcom due to the execs of CHCH. Could you tell at that time that it just wasn't fitting within the conceit of the show? Um, because we did the first season, just Steve and I locked away at CH, you know, maybe the crew laughed and that's, that's the only thing we knew. So the second season, when it started to become that, 
you're kind of wondering, is this what the show is evolving towards? We really didn't, really didn't know until the third season, because that's when we went in front of a live audience. And Steve had kind of whittled away some of the things that didn't work for him. And uh, the characters either worked or they didn't work in front of the audiences. And then they'd start to grow or they would be kind of moved along, you know. And I think that third season really when I went, this is what the show is. And that's why the second season didn't really fit it so well. It wasn't as tight as community as Possum Lodge was uh, set up to be. One of the uh, DVD extras, he mentioned how you only had the studio in the first season for eight days. You had eight days to shoot the in-studio stuff and that you ended up putting 83 pages on in one day. Yeah, Yeah. it was was gruesome (laughs) because, as I said, I was doing the Second City show and we were writing a show at the time. So that means during the day, you're usually supposed to be writing stuff for the show that night. But I didn't have that opportunity because we're filming the Red Green show during the day. So, you know, I'm trying to memorize lines for the Red Green show and memorize lines for the new show at Second City every night. So that was the big challenge to me, was just keeping all that stuff in my head, which became an amazing discipline within the show. Because you always knew once we started recording every two times a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays, you only had a few days to learn that, that script get rid of it. And then you had Thursday, Friday to learn Saturdays, you know, and that was sort of the turnaround. And then uh, I started doing a show called Traders in there as well. So that was the same thing where the days were filled with filming Traders during the day and then racing down to CBC to shoot at night. So the discipline of memorizing became uh, a huge, huge animal to kind of master. You know, so when I look back on the fact that we did 83 pages, it blows me away now because it was just the two of us and you didn't know what was working in that first season. You just kind of had to trust that everything was working. And unfortunately, people kind of responded to it. The response couldn't have been louder, I'm sure, as soon as you guys started getting the feedback. Well, I think there's that, that famous story that, that really when CHCH was going to cancel the show, Steve took a hockey bag of fan letters in, put it on their desk and said, you pick any letter in that bag and that'll be my pitch of why we should be on for another season. And sure enough, they went through the bag and started seeing that the show connected to people on such an emotional level, not necessarily in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, but everywhere else. And that's a huge audience, you know? And that's really why I think it works so well for PBS down in the States too, because it was, you know, specific audience. It was niche marketing that type of way. If the audience didn't like it, PBS didn't buy it. But so it was all middle America and the fringes that started buying this red green show that, that just suddenly became like their number one show on PBS. Yeah. Red's a very relatable character. Yeah, it was very much like an Andy Griffith kind of tone, like a live Andy Griffith in a way, you know, so people could recognize the characters, trust the people. They they certainly enjoyed the handyman corners of, that's my dad, that's my uncle, that's my brother. We just kept hearing that so much. It was like, we're striking a chord here in some form. Is there a certain segment that you preferred shooting in terms of handyman corner or ask the experts or possum lodge word game? For me, it was always the... um, the first scene of the show when it would say, I would, I'd introduce and here he is my uncle red, because that was sort of the introduction from the premise. So then the reactions would all start. Was I in with this plan or was I out of the plan? And that was, so you just kind of set up the conflict there because a lot of the outdoor stuff I wasn't in, it was mostly in the interior stuff that looks like I was in a lot of the things because it was threading its way through or the second scene would always be, I come in, you know, all blown up from Steve's first plan. Okay, that one didn't work. Let's try this. Oh no, Uncle Red, that's even worse. And then away we go. So usually that one, two, three pattern for me. And then, you know, four and five would be good nights. 
mean, that's always the, you know, the reaction too. But that first one was always fun because the audience was getting the fresh idea. They were seeing the potential of the problems. And it, that kind of putting that little stone in the, in the lake was always fun. I was going to ask about the shooting because like the wraparounds, the, the live audience version bits that you guys would do. Uh, was there a, a notion of what bits would fall in between? Like, were they all shot specifically like that week? Or did oh, they no, do all no. You know, they would do all the, uh, we would do all the interiors from maybe uh, September to mid-October. And then uh, the exteriors would be done like, you know, April to May, June, July, depending on the weather. You can just do a lot of the exteriors then. So it was always balanced out. And you really didn't have an idea of what would work. You didn't know, like, for instance, the handyman roof repair was coming up next. You never had that idea. That was always sort of up to Steve, depending on the rhythm of that episode, what might fit very well in there. Or particularly if we're talking about cars that week, maybe he'll do a segment on cars. But that way he had a pool of material to, to create the episodes out of. Yeah, those interstitials really didn't tie down to the main plot of what the Possum Lodge people were doing that week. No, not often. It would almost be like a meanwhile. So yep. you, when you came back and you were all blown up, they could fill in the blanks themselves. Of, while we were away watching Red Fix a Car, Harold was getting blown up, you know? Right. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the joy of the show is you really let the audience do most of the work. You know, that they had to vision a lot of that stuff themselves and create the punchlines just based on the premise. Mm -hmm. That was magic in itself of you you were off and running because sometimes good and bad because you, you could or could not fill their imaginations of what possibly would happen. But, you know, it usually ended in some kind of physical pain for Harold. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed in the third season you were uh, credited as a contributing writer. Were you in the writing room? Uh, a little bit. You'd kind of write sketches. Steve might say, go home and write uh, 12 Harold Handy Corners or, you know, and those type of things. So he'd let the character kind of create what you wanted. And then from there, I'd hand it off to him and he, he would probably go through it, him and Rick Green, and uh, they would make it the final scene. So it was always that kind of contribution of your sense of humor. You know the character very well. They, they knew my background was improv, that I could play, and, and I had some writing abilities. So that third season was opportunity for that. But then that's when the, the Trader show came in, the fourth season. So I couldn't uh, keep that schedule up anymore. Is there a standout memory for you? Um, there's a lot over 15 years. There's a lot. But I think one that got me the most was when we were shooting in front of a live audience at CBC. And there was a, you know, people came from all over dressed up like our characters. Busloads of people would come dressed like us. So there was a real, um, empathy with the room you know they they were there for you and they, a lot of them came back every week so we started doing one weekend we did something about uh, red was fixing a boat and he had a, he was going to create a lift and i think it was supposed to airlift out of the air it's like i don't know if that's going to work uncle red and he's like oh trust me it'll work and he goes here and he pushes a button next thing you know this boat falls from the ceiling at cbc and, and we were set up because we did rehearsal and it smashed in front of the room they had no idea this thing was above them the whole time and then when it smashed watching those people jump and scream and leap and and us staying as deadpan as possible the contrast of that reaction and our physical was just magic. One of those great things where, again, we trusted the audience would be there for us, and sure enough, they were. Let's see how it works in the normal world, huh? <laughs> yeah, but you don't live in the normal world. <laughs> okay, Mike, let her go. 
Keep your eye on the lake. Watch for the splash. Oh, no! You see, with a model, you don't have to worry about wind. That kind of harmony, like an orchestra, I just found brilliant. Wow. Yeah, you can only do that once. <laughs> that, was the, that was what we said all day. It was like, no, no playing around, boys. We get this joke once. And he, even when <laughs> Steve was a master at that, where if you were going to make a mistake and, and you messed up the setup, it'd be, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Go back, go back. He didn't okay. want the punchline coming out. Because the audience would, you know, you can only get that laugh once. Let's not mess it up. So he was really good at that. So it's another reason you had to know your lines because you could stop the whole show if you didn't. There, there was a bit I remember as a kid, and I, I haven't seen it within my rewatch, and I believe you were part of it, as my memory serves. It was a possum lodge word game with Ranger Gord, and I believe the word was nipple. And Red couldn't get a clue out because Ranger Gord just kept shouting words. <laughs> Uncle Red, you have 30 seconds to get Ranger Gord to say this word. Nostril. Nostril. Yeah, right. oh. Take off. Cabbage. What? Uh, lettuce. I mean, groceries. No, I haven't given any clues yet, Gordon. What, do you mean it's not lettuce or groceries? No, it's not lettuce or groceries. Oh, darn, I thought I had it. Uh, okay, uh, Android. <laughs> better give him a clue, Uncle Somebody Red. Somebody better give him a clue, I'll tell you that. A quick break. What? I could use a quick break. I need to think. No, no, it's only a short game. It's 30 seconds. Let's only go. Only 15 left now. All right. Okay, come on, Agor. This, this word is really easy. Uh, couch. I mean, that's a really easy word, you know? There's no weird pronunciation rules or spelling things. Easy to say? Oh, yeah. Couch. <laughs> or you, you can't just say words at random. Spaghetti. <laughs> Florida? Wait till I give you a clue and then oh, you say oh, it. Oh, uh, Android. Uh, cookie. Gord, you know how many words there are in the English language? Oh, I know. Uh, nostril. <laughs> there was a period of time when uh, I was out of the show and uh, the other guys took over the word game. So it could have been one of them doing that one because I don't remember that one. I remember one where the word was sex and he was trying to get Dalton to say sex. Mm. And, and I usually had to say, and the secret word is sex. Sex. And that's how it, that was the setup. But the whole thing was, I couldn't even say the word because Harold was just, you know, that was too big of a word for Harold to try and master. So the whole thing was just me going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and finally the character goes, sex? <laughs> Ding. <laughs> you know, it was a 30 second bit of, you can't say the word, go. And that's the whole bit. Okay, this is the big one. The grand prize is for a truckload of stuff we picked up at the side of the highway. <laughs> Mr. Humphrey, you have 30 seconds to get my uncle to say this.
sex. <laughs> just, that was one that was fun where Steve just said, I know Pat will do it. Yeah. And it was so much fun to do. Because that's oftentimes what the scripts would say was Harold reacts. And, then, and that would be it. You know, be like, okay, so it was up to me to react. Yeah, even in the first season, I noticed you had all the like idiosyncrasies of playing the spoon, and as he's singing, you're, you know, moving your hand. It's like, what would be? <laughs> yeah, it was all those things, and people pick up on that stuff. And so many people say, "Oh, you you twist your pocket when you get nervous, and you your hip goes before your eyes do." And you're, it's people have got it down to a science. It's incredible. Was it ever anything that you were aware of? Only when people start telling you about it, then you become aware of it. You know, like, oh, my hand does this, my hand does that. But if it does, then I started to, you know, use everything that you, you could. Like, well, if people are watching a finger, then just have one finger twitch while you're trying to say something very serious to Uncle Red. Mm-hmm. And people would pick up on that. You know, that's the advantage and disadvantage of the camera. It's, it's very intimate even though you're the only person who doesn't see it, you know, is you sharing it, but you can't see it. So you just got to trust. And it was amazing to watch people go, Oh, your hands are the funniest part. Oh, your knee is like, all right, whatever you're looking at, this makes it work. Steve is now working on a new podcast and you're going to be part of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's called back as many people. And I think as it goes, he, cause he really wasn't sure if this was going to work. So he thought, well, I'll just start with, you know, red or Harold and, Red and the Ranger Gord, like, because he's known Peter for almost 40 years, myself for over 30, you know, people you just kind of walk into a room and start laughing with. And so we started there and see if this thing's got any legs. And it's like, okay, yeah, we can invite the different characters in and start to see how they react to this situation. Because Steve, from the very beginning, was this was like a radio show to him. You know, that, like I said from earlier, that he would just stand there and talk. It'd all be very funny, but nothing visual. Well, now the podcast is just just words. You know, like we did a, we did a segment on a podcast where Harold's playing charades, you know, cause <laughs> again, you can physically picture Harold trying to get these words out if you know the show and that again, he's trusting the audience to really fill in the visuals of, you know, these characters and you're going to get to meet others that you didn't see like old man Sedgwick and Russ Thompson and so on, you know, Moose Thompson, all these characters that were listed, you might hear their voices now. It's a real opportunity. I always loved that about the show, that there was those characters, they were always part of the show. Like, oh, Moose Thompson up the road did this. You never got a chance to see them. No, no. And the longer the show went, the more we couldn't show them. People would be writing in and saying, no, I'm dying to meet. Oh, I got the perfect guy for this. Like, after a while, we couldn't catch up with anybody's imagination. Just like, leave it alone. <laughs> and it's just amusing to know that he'd pick charades. Like, what's the most visual thing we could do? Exactly. <laughs> and. I, you know, you, to be honest, when I read the character, you know, Harold plays charades, the name of the, the script, I thought, oh, this would be interesting to see. But the frustration of trying to get Uncle Red to play any game was just wonderful. You know, like, he, that part alone is like, and here we go. And Steve and I haven't done the characters in 15 years. You know, but we sat down and we were, boom, like getting on a bike and going. It was so much fun to do that again. You know, because after a show ends, oftentimes that's the last you ever see of that character. I mean, Harold is just, you know, he's part of me now. It it was great to do this. Yeah. And Harold and Wright have been put into a a comedy hall of fame. Yeah, I guess we're, yeah, we've been in this, uh, yeah, the comedy hall of fame. I think it's, uh, I think it's the Sons of the Desert Hall of Fame, which is Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Martin and Lewis and Smith and McKenna. (laughs) And that was, that was really nice. I was really touched by that, to be honest, because those are the guys I grew up 
you know, wanting to be. What have you been working on lately? I got back into doing some improv with a fellow named Neil Crone and Kevin Frank, a couple of guys from Second City that I used to work with. And so we do that for charities and things. We enjoy that as well as and I'm doing a, a lot of voices for cartoons uh, now for uh, Sesame Street and um, HBO and things like that. So, which is great because during the pandemic here, I can do voice work from home. So I've created a little studio here and I just record my cartoons from home and go about my retired life. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's been, it's been very lucky. You know, TV has changed a lot in, over the years. And uh, there was, you know, this show would never get picked up now. There's no way you could even pitch it to anybody. So the timing of it was, was just right. You know, and when Steve chose to end it, it was just right. Because you don't want the audience to send you away. You want to be able to walk away and leave a party when you want, you know. So it's been a, an interesting journey of, of time and place and audience. And I think that's the secret to any show is like, it doesn't matter how good you are. It's like you got to have that timing as well. Yeah. I have 300 episodes in 15 seasons is quite a feat. Yeah, it, it's, it was magic. And I swear that every day. Was it was a blast. There was never, ever, ever, ever a bad day on set. Because my wife and I were just talking about this, where she's been reading about people from Glee and all this, how they hated the, the work environment and all these the sets and what people's reactions are like. And I'm saying I can't honestly ever think of a day on Red Green where there's a temper tantrum or I want this or I want that. It was just a bunch of guys hanging around laughing, and we would stop to shoot a show every now and then. <laughs> Sounds like the perfect work environment. It was great. It was great. I can't think of a better note to end this on. Uh, so thank you for your time, Pat. Thanks, and uh, keep on uh, celebrating comedy. That's great. I'm doing my best. <laughs> thank you. Take care. And we're not done yet. No. I think I would stop at just one interview. I mean, Pat's great, of course. But let's go now to member of the Order of Canada, and co-creator of the Red Green Show, Mr. Rick Green. Ooh, Order of Canada, which comes with a side order of New Brunswick. Uh, very few people know that. So. <laughs> um, tell me, how did you become involved in co-creating the show with Steve? So um, when I was with the Frantics comedy troupe, uh, Steve liked what we were doing. He was writing his own show, Smith and Smith, all by himself. Uh, his wife was funny, but uh, he was doing the writing. And it's heavy lifting for, you know, you see the writer credits on any show. There's usually a lot of them and then story editors and all the rest. And he was doing it all by himself. So he contacted the Frantics about writing for him. The Frantics were not interested as a group. It was so different from what we were doing. Um, but... I had a child and another one on the way, and I said, I'll do it. Um, and Steve said to me, I've just, I just need ideas. Even if I don't use a word of what you send me, I'm going to, um, I just need some fresh input. He had a whole slew of characters, Shorty Long, this was this tiny little detective, and Red Green was one of them. And there was a segment he did with his wife, where it was called Twisted Rolls, where he was the woman and uh, Morag, his wife, played the, uh, the man running a bakery with thick Scottish accents and so on. It was, it was a fun little show. I uh, had a following, but it was one station, Channel 11 out of Hamilton, CHCH. Uh, and so it was running on one station, Channel 11, and it was low budget, and I sent him stuff, and he loved it. And then he moved on to another show called, uh, when that ended, 
he pulled the plug on that and started a show called Comedy Mill, which featured him, his wife, and several other great performers, including Peter Callahan, who went on to become Ranger Gord. And so I was writing for that, story editing for that. So I was working with a lot of other writers. And that got canceled, even though it won the Gemini Award as Best Comedy. Uh, It was canceled. And it was up against like a lot of big national shows on CBC and CTV. And it was uh, probably within a week of winning the Gemini, it was canceled. So Steve called me and said, "Um, we're going to do a show based around one character, I think Red Green, until I can figure out what I'm really going to do. And I said, okay. And we started... Uh, messing around with the structure and how it would look and we were sending stuff back and forth and then and we went and saw Pat McKenna performing at Second City and Steve had wanted him on the show and he said picture him he's like 20 years old and he's my nephew I went ah oh. because Red Green is a, a corpse but you know Red stands yeah. there oh this evening and now you got this energy oh beside him so it was a perfect balance, right? It was terrific. It was a brilliant idea. Steve was great at coming up with it, like seeing these possibilities. I, I, and so, you know, I sent him, we went back and forth. There was going to be a meeting at the end where they'd all come together. Um, and I, you know, came up with the man, with the uh, man's prayer. I'm a man. I can change. But if I have to, I guess. Which I, when, I, when I sent him the first, I said, we've got to have a closing ritual. He thought that was hilarious. And so did other people. Um, and then he just started filling out the cast, draw, calling on favors. And, you know, we had uh, uh, Gordon Pinsent and Ian Thomas playing the monster truck owner, the musician Ian Thomas, painted ladies. And he had so much fun. That, and all these people who were not necessarily um, known as skit comedy performers or even comedy performers wanted to, the, you know, Ian loved the opportunity to be this guy, this uh, whale or Ed, and oh, it was fun. Oh, cars are my specialty. Oh, I'll say. Oh, I'll say. Oh, I'll tell you what. There's nothing that Dougie here doesn't know about cars. Oh, okay, excellent. That's going to make this question so perfect then. Okay, it says, uh, my new car has an electronic ignition and computer-controlled fuel injection. I was wondering, what is the importance of Boolean logic and computer programming? <laughs> excellent question. <laughs> Uh, Dougie? What? <laughs> you want to field that question? Was there actually a question in there, Red? Oh, yeah. That was the importance of Boolean logic in computers. <clears throat> well, uh, <coughs> you know, that is a dandy uh, question. And, uh, but, you know, I can't answer it because they didn't really mention what make a car it was they bought. <laughs> so when we got out on that first day, um, they were going to shoot it in 16 mil because the thing, the idea of, yeah, I just adjusted in editing and make it look like film or black and white film or stripes. None of that was there. So it was had to be, uh, it was going to have to be filmed. So it looked like film, but he'd only brought black and white and Steve just stood there for a minute. All right. It's going to be black and white. And that was kind of how the show went. We just we chugged along, just making each other laugh. And that was, that was, it, it took off. It just it, it went crazy after a season. It was a, a phenomenal. And usually those little mistakes end up being very pertinent to what the skit becomes, like Adventures with Bill. Like you wouldn't want to see that in color. No, and and it's it's you know people who are saying I love the homage to the black and white silent comedy, and we're 
yeah, that's it. Exactly what we were doing. A homage. <laughs> I don't want to know more. You know, so it was, yeah, you're right. You just, you wing it. And it, um, at some points, in, like in that first season, first three seasons maybe even, there was Steve and I, I was directing, Steve was the producer. We were both the writers. We were on camera together doing Adventure with Bill. There was the cameraman, Bob. There was uh, Steve, the assistant, who did everything. And there was Sandy, and she was production manager, makeup, costume, props. Uh, and if there was something really complicated, they had a garage where they would get the cars from. Uh, and they were a great bunch of guys. They would uh, fix up a car if it needed. That was more for actually for the um, handyman workshops. They would be welding and doing all the stuff that Steve was not going to do on camera or anywhere. Um, and so there were five of us out on location. Uh, it was amazing. A small group. And so we had to figure out how to do everything once we got there. You know, I got to work with stuntmen when I, I left the show for several years to do another series and then came back again for the last three or four seasons. And at that point, they were doing really complicated stuff. And my character had been replaced by Walter, uh, played by Joel uh, Harrison. Uh, so I got to work with a lot of stunt people. And some of them, I mean, they were really professional people, but they were also, they're like athletes. They're restless. So when there was nothing happening, they would be, you know, jumping into a garbage can upside down just to keep in practice. And it was really, it was fun. And, and at one point, Joel started walking around on his hands, uh, just like, yeah, upside down, feet in the air, and walked along. And I, okay. I wrote one where he spent the entire scene on his hands. <laughs> but yeah, so it was, it, by the end, I mean, it was, a, it was a big show, and there was a large cast. And, you know, there were, just for the live audience, there were probably seven or eight people for audience wrangling and all that kind of stuff. Season two, where it uh, changed the format, uh, were you guys aware of how that would affect the show? Well, so in the second season, um, the person who had now taken over the job at, at the station um, and whose background was not in really comedy or television or skit comedy or anything of this nature looked at the show and went, well, you need to have a sitcom, three camera shoot and more characters. And they pushed to have, I think they pushed to have uh, Steve shaved because you never have a star with a beard in a, com I mean, name a comedy show where the star has a beard and you want to see the wife, of course, because that's where all the comedy comes from. That wasn't going to ever happen. And uh, so this format and it basically killed the show because it now looked kind of like everything else but it was badly done you know it was three cameras in a studio where there should be six or whatever there would have been and all of the extra crew and cast and or crew members and so on and uh that you would have normally had in a uh a california hollywood sitcom a u.s sitcom we didn't have the resources so it looked, I mean, it looked better than something shot at Cable 10 Community Station, but it was, it was never going to be that. And part of what really worked in it was the, uh, and I don't know if Steve considered this going in, but the lodge itself was such a conglomeration. It, it looked lousy. It looked ugly. It looked cluttered. It worked. It, it really, because the show was about a bunch of guys at a lodge. Well, that's not going to look like Architectural Digest. So the very location, the whole message of the show, you know, if we'd gone out to to meet a character at, you know, at their location, um, 
say, Ian Thomas with the monster truck. They might have decorated it all up, got all kinds of stuff. It's like, no, there's a wreck of a car. Let's get it in the shot. We just, we just found really dumpy places. So we were shooting where nobody else was shooting. You know, we were finding these dumpy sites and going in there. And it, the production values we got from that, what you would have normally paid to a set designer and all these other people. Yeah, and it's easier to do when you're going a little gorilla and yeah, just sneaking in and yeah, in. and oh. yeah, absolutely. And so uh, the show got changed the second season, and and because it was now awful, the ratings tanked and it got canceled. Yeah, and so Steve managed. I mean, I I don't I have a slight um, sense of what he went through, but he sacrificed a lot to get us on. Uh, another network, which was actually a split. It's a long story, but eventually uh, it found its home on the CBC, and he was told by the head of uh, CBC, and I can't think of his name, but he's a wonderful guy, um, he said, as long as I'm here, Red Green will have a home. It's interesting because it was a, um, there were all ages in the audience, you know, from 65, 80, down to, to six, and it was really, that was so lovely because I remember going to a meeting selling and talking about an idea special with some young performers about the history of Canada as a long story, but it didn't go anywhere. But they said, uh, they said, there's no such thing. The executives in charge of comedy said to me, there's no such thing as a family audience anymore. <laughs> like, you need to go down to your studio and look. They never did because it wasn't sophisticated humor. It was... It, and the people who never saw the show thought it was hee-haw. Um, so that was interesting because they thought it was corny. And yet it was, there were some, it was sophisticated stuff. It was clever. It was, it wasn't as bizarre as Monty Python by any means, but it, it, it was true to itself in this wonderful way. And it addressed so many different issues. Uh, it was wonderful. Just wonderful. I just had some other small dumb questions. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, how practical were the uh, were some of Red's handyman corner designs? Like, that's a great uh, question. How practical were Red's designs? There was very little cheating done in the sense of um, that there was something hidden that you couldn't see that made it operate. You know, it wasn't like it's like if he claimed he didn't build a robot and then it got up and walked around. And, and well, it's actually a guy in a costume. No kidding. Um, so a lot of them made sense. They probably wouldn't have lasted long. Or for example, I made a fold-out. I had this one where where it was a fold-out bed made of uh, car tires. Oh no, maybe it was milk cartons. It was one of those two. There were two pieces of furniture. Anyway, one was maybe it was the milk cartons, and you kind of it unfolded, and and the mattress would go on top, and so on, and. This is back in the day when decorating your place with milk cartons was kind of the de, de rigueur if you were of a certain income level or going to university. And uh, they, to make it all work in the hinging, you know, duct tape, but then what you might do in there is also have some hidden rope to hold it and make it stronger. This week in the Handyman Corner, we're doing another installment of our series on how to build fine furniture. You know, there is something darn wonderful about uh, being able to take some strips of unblemished hardwood and make yourself a beautiful table, or uh, even take uh, some wrought iron and weld it into some uh, lawn furniture, or uh, grab a couple of milk crates. Right? <laughs> 
and turn them into a handy-dandy little bookshelf. <laughs> Suddenly you're part of a long tradition of fine craftsmen who've turned uh, woodworking or what have you into an art. But you know, uh, after your first project of this, uh, you might want to try something a little more ambitious. I mean, a bookshelf is okay to look at, but next thing you know, you have to buy books, and uh, that seems a little pretentious uh, for a lodge member. <laughs> so this week, I'm going to show you how you can do something just a tad more ambitious. We're going to take uh, these milk crates here, and we're going to make a fold-away couch bed. But there was one I did that was really interesting. It was, um pontoon boat a boat made out of furnace ductwork and i I'd always looked at the ductwork and thought well if you solder this you know because i i do some house home renovation and stuff i looked at it and i thought this stuff is it's thin but it's basically no different from the pontoons in a boat so i came up with the idea of having two 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 pieces like a furnace duct and then in between them two cross pieces and then at either end you know how you have a 90 degree curve in the furnace so at, at either end there would be a curve so it was kind of like a sled yeah. uh this thing and then the curved ends that were capped up with a uh, an end and they soldered they had one that was ha just parts laid out then they had sort of half assembled that we, we did something where we half assembled and duct tape then they had that pre-built and it was actually soldered and then reds on there with the duct tape peeling the duct tape on and sticking it on so it looked like it was held together with duct tape mm -hmm. so the time comes to launch it and uh, so we throw it in the water in this little pond and it floats and it draws about this much water and not much more once we put a, a chair on it a, a recliner chair and a big board and then the outboard motor in between red's legs yeah but when that went in the water and just sat there stable you could just, there was silence, and the crew was all guys pretty much, or mostly guys, and you just, you could, you could make a, a houseboat that way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Let me try. It, like, it was, it, it worked, right? It was yeah. hilarious. You're the kind of person who enjoys spending your quality family time out fishing, you know, by yourself. You're really going to love the project on this week's Handyman Corner. Sure, they got comfortable fishing boats, but are any of them as comfortable as your favorite recliner? <laughs> no, sir. So I say we take some of the comfort out of your home and put her out onto the lake. Now you could just take your favorite chair and stick it into your favorite boat there, but you know, that would be kind of tippy and, and probably look foolish. And if there's one thing the handyman has, it's his dignity and bruises. So what we're gonna do is, we're going to mount that reclining chair on a couple of pontoons we're going to make out of these home heating ducts. All right, first thing you want to do is you want to seal up all the openings here. I would suggest don't go cheap on this. It's your life that's at stake, so use the handyman secret weapon, duct tape. But yeah, so practical. Mostly what you saw was, was being done the way you saw it being done. Uh, right. Um. Is there a moment that stands out for you, uh, one you won't forget, like one you won't forget from the show, whether it involved you or maybe you were just the director? So I wrote a skit, um, Mail Call. And, um, and after I sent it to Steve, he called me up, which he rarely did. Um, 
he called me up and said, this is really good. We're doing this. And the scene opens. Oh, welcome, Neil Caldwell. Okay, Uncle Red, our, our letter this week is, Dear Red, my brother is gay. How can I talk? I'm out of it. And Red's just, and the audience goes on. And, of course, Red's subtle and, and Pat's, you know, doing, doing Pat, right? Doing Harold. This went on. And finally... Red says, I don't know if you, I don't think you can talk anyone out of being gay. Could someone talk you into being No, no. Okay, dear experts, my brother is gay. <laughs> my brother is gay, and I tried to talk him out of it, but he says he was born this way. How can I get him to straighten out and fly right? <laughs> What are you guys looking at me for? I'm an expert on, on boats and RVs. Yeah, I, I know I know what I just thought. Maybe, you know, you could... Uh... No, I got seven... Red, I'm married. I got seven kids. I got seven kids at home, pal. I know. I just thought... I thought you just would be, you know, more comfortable with the... Uh... <laughs> hey, I don't think you got any kids, do you, Red? You don't have any kids. <laughs> well, go ahead. Feel that. Feel that. Go ahead. Right there. Come on. No, feel it. Come on. Here, feel that. Hold on. I'd rather not. I'm four motors every day. Don't tell me. All right, all right. I just thought, you know, you'd be, you'd, you'd feel more comfortable. You got the kids, you know, and everything. You're so masculine. I thought you'd be, you'd be fine. You know? Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Mind you, Glenn. You know, your kids are all girls. So, but excuse me. I just think what my my uncle is trying to say in his primitive, uh, politically incorrect way is that uh, you know, being the father of seven daughters. Perhaps you'd be more in touch with your feminine side than the other guys around here. Whoa, whoa, feminine side, Harold. I don't have a feminine side. I got two sides, front and back, and they're both masculine, okay? Okay, well, Jeez. for God's sake, don't try to prove it, Forrest. <laughs> look, look, all right, if you're uncomfortable with this... I'm not uncomfortable. No, no. I wish there was more gay guys in the world. Sure, then I wouldn't have to watch my teenage daughters like a hawk. <laughs> Okay, um, I think we've offended everybody with any sensitivity now. So why don't we just wrap this up? No, 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 I can answer this. Oh, I mean, it, you, you can't talk somebody out of being gay, you know. See, it's biological. Live and let live. Do what you want to do, you know. Just mind your own business. Wow. <laughs> cool answer, Mr. Braxton. Boy, I wish more guys around here had sensitivity like you. <laughs> why is that, Harold? No, no, no way. No, feel that. Feel that. And this is, and you got to get, this show is going to a, um, an audience that may not necessarily be a sophisticated uh, uh, New York audience or a big city audience. These are people who, whatever they know about homosexuality, they've read and heard or in, heard in jokes or just from somebody who's deeply religious and, and is quoting, uh, uh, you know, stuff from the dark ages or whatever. So for him to include that, I thought was really courageous. And, uh, and I, I just liked that he, he, there were certain things that he kept, he didn't put a laugh track in. So when he was doing handyman corner, cause it was dangerous and it was slow. Um, you didn't have a live audience. Same with adventures with Bill. Um, the audience wasn't there. And so the laughter was added in later. And sometimes like there was one where the couch made of car tires and he said, Oh, I got another skid mark on my pants with the line. Right now, he, 
Now, uh, the real ambitious uh, handyman would also uh, make himself this uh, matching uh, side table here. It's just a wheel on an axle and mounted on a Christmas tree stand. So I did this with a Volvo because uh, my wife really likes the Scandinavian furniture. Imports. Well, let's give her a try. Fools rush in where angels fear the tread. <laughs> Hope this doesn't put another skid mark on my pants. It's a great joke, but he... Uh he didn't add a laugh to it. And the reason was, he said, I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable for the kids go, what's funny? And the parents going, um, um, so it was really classy. But that said, inside of that, he took people to places they weren't necessarily comfortable going. And that was, that was kind of neat. And there was something, another scene where somebody said, uh, one of the lodge members is gay. Well, at least one, probably three, you know, and like it just, it was, yeah. That's okay. They're, they're, they're guys, they're lodge members, you know, or whatever. So it was, that was neat. And, you know, you weren't going to get that on, on most shows that were aimed at that crowd, uh, that audience, which was a, not necessarily a big city audience, but they were also a fairly sophisticated audience. Yeah. And they would send, they'd send in suggestions for uh, ideas for doing things. Oh, wow. you know, that one guy wrote in great sense of humor, fans had, and he said, you know, around here in northern Wisconsin, Red Green is a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lifestyle show. And there was a woman professor, I've told this often, a professor at York University who wrote and said, um, a woman professor, and she said, don't ever have women on your show because we know how you behave when we're around. Right, and that's when you end up with a nagging wife and the husband is, you know, everybody loves Raymond and all the dumb husband and the, and so on. So, uh, I thought that was a really interesting from a university professor, and she was in the humanities, although I couldn't tell you what. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of the audience, uh, the lodge members at the end of the show was that just a studio audience sat yep. in front of the cameras for a bit? Yep. Everybody signed a little thing saying they were okay. They were natural hams. The people who got up there were the people who were fans. They wanted to so, be part of the show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because they, in a way, they already were in their daily life. These are people who own power tools, who have built things, who have done, uh, you know, have gone fishing or building cabins or whatever. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Jeff Lumby, who played the... Uh, uh, Winston. Roth, Winston Rothschild III, which is just so great uh, character name. Uh, the sewage guy. He was invited to the American Sewage Associ whatever Association as the, the speaker. He said he was treated like a god. He's our hero. And uh, yeah, so there were just, there were so many moments where we just, we do something and then just be doubled over with laughter because it, you know, and then we'd have to crowd around and see how it looked. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was the best. It was just breaking each other up, making things laugh. And, and the camera, especially when we did, I did something and the camera guy would, after everybody, are you all right? Yep. Didn't even touch me. Wow, that looked amazing. You know. <laughs> What's keeping you busy these days? That's a good question. So um, around 2000 and Eight, uh, I approached Patrick McKenna about the idea of making a documentary about ADHD because he, pretty sure he had it. I had been diagnosed for seven years at that point. And so my wife and I were going to put together this documentary. 
and have somebody diagnosed on camera throughout it. And I had already been diagnosed. And he said, sure. He jumped on board because people with ADHD will say yes to anything. Sure. Uh, and so we, uh, it took off. It, this, the documentary was called ADD and Loving It, question mark, exclamation mark. And I chose that so that people who have ADHD, who have the mindset, would go loving it. This has led to three divorces, four bankruptcy. Like they can list. The statistics are horrifying. Ten years off your life from car accidents from uh, like there's a lot it's it's not a thing to be taken lightly the squirrel joke is more than thin anyway um so we it took off uh, and the star of it really in my mind uh, up one of the keys was that it was a love story so patrick's wife janice is in it she didn't want to be but she knew they sat down and talked about it and she realized that they could avoid help people avoid what they've been through with their son, much as they love him. Attention deficit disorder. There are many myths about ADD, and I think maybe that's the, the scariest, is that there are so many. The amount of misinformation is incredible. The experts aren't sure of a lot of things, and some widely accepted theories have been shot down. What I learned to do in graduate school to treat ADHD, I would now consider malpractice. You know, a lot of people think that ADD is some sort of death sentence, while other people think it's nothing at all. It's completely made up, not an issue. We know for sure this is a disorder that will hurt you. Moderate or severe ADHD that goes untreated leaves you really at a loss in life. And so this thing took off and we created a website, totallyadd.com. People came out of the woodwork. Um, and then it ran on PBS, and suddenly there were, I mean, I, I've had video, we've had years where we've had 2 million unique visitors from around the world. It's been really rewarding, I have to say, and that's what's led to the Order of Ontario, the Order of Canada, um, speaking to schools and groups and, and having people come up at the end of a talk and just say, I want you to know, I had bought pills to end my life, and then I happened to catch your documentary, and I realized it's, I'm not an idiot. And I went to my doctor and I threw out the pills I had and, and got something way better. And in two weeks, my life's completely turned around. It's like, holy shit. It's, uh, yeah. It's, so it's been, it's been uh, really, um, it's been moving. It's been exhausting because it was meant to be kind of like red green. Well, we'll just do this for a year until we figure out what we're going to do. But the need has been so great that it's just, it's taken off. And it's a pretty cool community. I mean, you may know some comedians. And uh, if you look at a list of ADHD <laughs> symptoms, <laughs> well, anybody in show business is like, yeah, I mean, I'll have it full-blown, but I'm out that way. Yeah. So, Definitely. Wow, that's great. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Time, right? well, All right, good work, man. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, thank you, sir. There you have it. The first episode of the A-Plus podcast is complete. Now, if you're curious about the Red Green Show, it's all been uploaded to YouTube on the official Red Green TV channel. You can also check out Red's new podcast that just launched over at possumlodgeonline.com. Big thanks to both Pat McKenna and Rick Green for their time. Please take a look at totallyadd.com. And thank you to Oliver Eckstein for helping me with the mix. So, since I'm new, I'm not really sure what I'm getting myself into here. But please, leave a review, a rating, even subscribe to this podcast. Thanks for listening, 
Happy Canada Day. And remember, keep your stick on the ice. Down, down, down. Okay. Yep. Down. All right. All right. <laughs> All right, men, uh, bow your heads for the men's prayer. I'm, I'm a man, man and I can change if, if I, I have to, to I, I guess. guess. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, listen up. Uh, Winston has a brief announcement. Winston? Uh, yeah, guys, thanks to Red, I'm not getting married. Okay, okay, don't say anything more. I just want you guys to know that I've told everybody in the lodge about you two. And, uh, well, uh, it's okay by us, huh? Huh?